Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 167, They Will Keep All Peril From You. This week we're discussing season 3, episode 9 of Angel, Lullaby, and season 2, episode 8 of Battlestar Galactica, Final Cut. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. So, Angel, first this week with Lullaby. Um, mm-hmm. Did you want to mention the production note of... Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, we can... It. Yeah, no, I, it's, so it's directed and written by Tim Minear. So, you know, definitely, you know, he was one of my favorites. So always, always like to bring that up um, yeah. Yeah. when it happens. Uh, and yeah, I mean, which is interesting because like when you think about just going back through Angel and the episodes that he's written, like it's a lot of, you know, Angel and Darla's relationship, mm-hmm. uh, especially through flashback, which mm-hmm. we get more here. Of course, he's not the only one who has done flashback and, and we don't really get a ton of flashback here, but also, and we can talk about this when we're talking about the actual flashback, one of the darkest, mm. I think, yeah. you know, flashbacks and maybe moments in general mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of Angel so far. Um, so, well, and if we extend that beyond the flashback, I would say two of the darkest moments that we've had so far. Um, sure. You know, uh, sure if we kind of see in a way, even though they're not exactly the first and the last scene, there's a sort of bookend there, Um, you know, with what happens in the flashback and then sort of the ending with Darla. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah. And both of them I think are among the, the kind of either just the bleakest or the most sort of shocking, you know, moments that we've had in this series, I think so far. Um, so, yeah. And I think you, you, besides, uh, writing good episodes and writing a lot of flashback heavy episodes, like, you know, I think Tim Minear also, it's like, you, you know, you're going to get some serious plot development and some darkness when he comes around, like, you know, sure. um, he's not writing the fun, goofy episodes. He's writing the really, you know, gut-wrenching emotional you know turning points and everything sure uh so okay yeah i kind of wanted to start with the flashback um because i want to start with holtz in general and i think it's short enough that it's easy to sort of you know start there so you know the last episode i felt like was much more flashback heavy but this one is really the kind of capstone you know culmination of that mm-hmm. whole plot and seeing, you know, all the things that um, Angel and Darla, you know, did to him. This is sort of the really, you know, worst part of it. Um, you know, so right. it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just terrorizing his community. It's not even just attacking and killing his family. Um, but it's, you know, I think the gut-wrenching part of it is what they kind of, the situation they set up 
and what it forces him to do. You know, so it's not just that we slaughtered your family, but they make it in such a way that he has to become a participant in that. Um, you know, sure. so they, you know, you find out, I think I, now I don't remember quite from the last episode. I think I had presumed or something that they had killed the whole family, you know, but then yeah. you find out here that, um, at first it's, you think, oh, the, you know, the, the older daughter, you know, escaped, um, but of right. course she didn't. <laughs> so, you know, you know, well, they turn it's... her and leave her there for him to deal with, which is the and kind I... of knife twist, you know. And I think part of it's because you don't see an older daughter before, right? Because we right. You only see there's a son and a mother and then you hear the baby cry. Right, right. And and Darla's like, which one of us is going to mm. take care of that or whatever. Right. Um, so you don't you don't actually get that there's an older daughter too. Mm -hmm. And then, so when you see her or hear her and it's, it's the very, right. She's not demonic mm -hmm. in any way. I mean, she's a vampire, so she is, but you right. know what I mean? Like she's not demonic she, looking. Yeah. She's acting like a little child and, and seems to be genuinely acting like a little, like, you know, this goes back to the whole question of how much of the, personality is mm -hmm. the individuals or not because like she still calls him daddy and like all this stuff right mm -hmm. like so it's there's definitely that sense or papa or whatever it is maybe it's not daddy but like right, right you know whatever whatever that is and so there's you know there's that sense where yes it is a vampire but at the same time not a vampire it's still kind of his little girl and so mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that that sort of slow revelation of mm -hmm. the things that they do you know even continuing from the last flashbacks where it's like oh first you realize like oh wait they're at a different house mm -hmm. and then oh wait it's holtz's house and then right. oh wait they're killing his wife and then oh crap now there's a baby and right. like now it's like on top of that, oh, there's a little girl. And, oh, they didn't kill her. They turned her into a vampire. Right. And, like, just that slow sort of, yeah, you know, piecemeal revelation of each sort of more horrifying right. thing that they did to him. and Right. Each layer, uh, it gets a little worse. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway. And, and, yeah, like I said... Not even just that they did it all, but that they then don't finish the job. They leave it for him. Like, you know, this is the final, you know, the, the, the final act of cruelty is that, you know, he has this choice to make, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it, that's, that's a, a very dark and a very, you know, disturbing scene of, him having to sort of drag her out to the sunlight, um, yeah. you know, so, and, yeah. And having, having to sort of do it in that determined, right. Uh, lack of emotion or compassion or whatever you want to call it. Right. Like, like the, the, you know, this is the work that I've 
committed myself to kind of thing. Um, right. Well, and it's the only way to do it. You know, it's the right. only way you have to, uh, in, if he's going to do it, he has to sort of, you know, isolate himself emotionally from the whole situation. Like that yeah. bandaid has to get ripped off or else, you know, it's not coming off that sort of thing. Um, um, and don't want to like overpass the song, mm. the hint, the hymn that he sort of sings. And the, so when I tried looking up the closest I could get was that this was like a Welsh traditional hymn, but I couldn't actually figure out when it was written or whatever, but it is, it's not like something they wrote for the show. It's okay. an actual old, old song. Um, but the refrain, of course, is all through the night. But the, the lyrics are all about going to sleep. It's, mm. you know, sleep, sleep, my love, and peace attend thee all through the night. Guardian angels, God will lend thee all through the night. Um, slow the drowsy. And then he sort of gets interrupted there, right? I mm. think that's when uh, either she calls out to him or something happens. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like, it's it's all about sleeping through the night and, and going to sleep and letting letting God sort of take your soul and letting right. the angels, you know, protect you from peril and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And, um, of course the, the, you know, uh, the, the, the counter of that or the, the sort of hidden meaning of that is sleep is death. And, and right. That's, you know, it's the, Hamlet, you know, um, you know, right. sleep to sleep, you know, is per, to per chance to dream. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the relief of just letting it go. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and that seems to be his sort of sustaining song, of course, which he then hums later. Right. But we'll get to that um, moment uh, when we get to it. So, yeah. Uh, right. Well, I mean, to jump ahead to that slightly, it like it, it, it rather than, you know, the lullaby is the, the comforting melody that puts you know a, a baby or a child to sleep but then that becomes like this twisted thing that he like if he's singing it later he's humming it to himself like before he like tries to like blow them up it's like this is right. now for him the thing he sings when he's sort of dealing out death you know like this is yeah. the the melody i associate with you know not just death itself in the sense of Oh, the relief of going to sleep, but like, I'm the I'm this angel of death, really, who goes and gives that to other people. Um, sure. Like he becomes the kind of wielder of that. So. Um. So yeah, yeah I mean, kind of. I don't know whether that's the last, uh, you know, flashback or whatever that we'll have with him, but certainly kind of giving sufficient motivation to his actions, you know, um, and kind of obviously explaining when he says to Angel, you know, Angel's kind of trying to appeal to his humanity and say, like, what kind of bargains did you have to make to, you know, deal with, you know, we talked last week about the kind of like selling your soul Faustian element to it. But, you know, Holtz is saying, uh, what did I lose? I didn't lose anything. Like I'd already lost everything. Um, mm -hmm. you know, not just literally lost his family, but he had already been sort of turned into a killer in his own eyes. 
you know, and, sure. and a killer of his own children and family. So for him, the way he's seeing it, there really was no soul or humanity left to bargain with. Um, so what does it matter? You know, at this point, he's kind of seemingly embracing like this very nihilistic viewpoint, at least for himself. I mean, maybe yeah, not totally. And- I mean, he sees himself as this wielder of justice. So not, it, he certainly sees a point to what he's doing, but he also seems very bleak about his own, you know, prospects well, in that, that he's already lost anything anyway. So he might as well go all the way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe you're right. Like, it's not strictly nihilistic, but but there is a detachment mm-hmm. to it. And like, for example, you know, Angel Angel says, there's no justice for the things I did to you. And he goes, you didn't do them to me. And it's like, well, well, yeah, kind of. I mean, like, I get what he's saying. Like, you killed my family, you turned my daughter, mm-hmm. whatever. But those all forced Holtz's hand in mm-hmm. a way, too. So, like, you know, they're they're definitely, like, yes, he did them to the other people, but the other people are dead now. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's not, like, you can't do something to someone who doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> right. Excuse me. Um, so anyway, like he, he's the one who still suffers for it, I guess is kind of what I'm getting at. Um, so Holtz is sort of being a bit disingenuous when he says that, but, Mm -hmm. but I think he's, you know, trying to at least maintain, like I said, like a detachment Mm -hmm. from what was done and what he feels he needs to do in response to it. Right. Well, and I hadn't thought about it that way, but now that you say it, I can see that's the way that like the actor plays it, you know, is, is very stoic and he's a very few words and he never gives away any hint of what he's really thinking or feeling, you know, if anything, um, mm-hmm. you know, so even, uh, you know, Sajan is always kind of a little having to explain himself and always a little bit confused even about what Holtz is really thinking or what his motivations are because he doesn't really, you know, he's not on the kind of crazy vengeance trip. I mean, he is, but outwardly he doesn't present it that way. Um, It's this very like, almost like Terminator kind of like machine of justice and vengeance of like, I'm just going through the motions doing what I have to do. And it's not about how I feel. It's about, you know, what's right and what has to be done. Um, you know. Although, although it's not only about that. Because he does seem to be sensitive to the way in which he kills them as well. Like, mm. I mean, all right. So I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but you brought up Sajan. So, like when he talks, you know, when he gets angry, like, oh, you didn't tell me Angel had a soul. Mm-hmm. And Sa John's like, oh, well, uh, you know, whatever. And Holtz is like, well, that's even better. Because now, like, you know, I can, I can, uh, you know, release his soul for, like, all eternal damnation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like there's, this, there's this sense in which, like, it's not just enough to, like, take vengeance and kill angel but like there has to be 
the punishment aspect of it too. Right. And like that wasn't possible before when Angel was just a vampire because right. like you know whatever reason. But like now you actually can look at it and and see that like oh well now Angel will be tortured for eternity for mm-hmm. the things that he did. Um, well and what you were saying earlier about the slow unfolding of Angel and Darla and and how you see kind of layer by layer that it keeps getting worse what they did. Um, I feel like there's a parallel there with Holtz because and at first it when I like the first time I watched it when I wasn't sure where it was going it was almost going to start to get on my nerves because I kind of felt like they were toying with me a little bit of there's several points in the episode where you feel like maybe he's going to change his mind. You know, maybe he might feel yeah, a little bad. Maybe sure. he might even forgive them. Like, like when he's angry about, uh, you didn't tell me Angel had a soul. For a second there, you might think, oh, maybe that's because if Angel has a soul, he feels like, oh, I can't do it. But then you find out, well, no, actually, he's not only does he still think he can do it, but he relishes it even more. Um, you know, and... Same thing, like, when he finds out there's a baby, there's a sense of, like, maybe he'll back off of Darla and the baby, but then it's like, nope, nope, he's still going for it, you know? And then, like, skipping way to the end, at the very end, you know, he doesn't kill them. You know, he has his crossbow. He sees, you know, they're, you know, vulnerable. Like, this is the moment to do it, you know? And there's that kind of look, and he lets them go. And again, like, you're thinking okay, now that he actually sees the baby, maybe he'll change his mind. And then the final line is about, you know, I swore that I would show no mercy and I won't. So it's like, I'm letting them go so that I can take even worse vengeance on them later. Like, like the moment isn't still not ripe yet. So there's still that, which I feel like I like better in retrospect than I did watching it the first time. Like there's a similar kind of, thing there of he's not just going to do the the most uh obvious thing at the moment that he can he's going to draw it out and make it as terrible as he possibly can which is exactly what they did to him you know so it's sort of you know i think consciously sort of whether or not he sees it this way, it's sort of modeling himself on them and the way that they went about sort of torturing their victims and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And even so, like, at one point, Angel says to him, uh, I forget forget exactly uh, how he phrased it, but you know, basically says, like, Holt says something about, you know, getting justice. And and Angel says, like, you know, you're being used for some purpose other than justice. Mm-hmm. And you kind of wonder at that point, like, does Holt's care? You know what I mean? Like, is it really about justice anymore anyway? Right. Like, you know, or is there, you know... I mean, is he becoming to an extent or has he become already as monstrous as Angel and Darla were? Like, is this, is it really a full, you know, switch of, 
you know, reversal of roles, I guess is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say, you know, or, you know, it's not that like Holt is like still on the same path and like now Angel and Darla are just like in a different position relative to that path. Right, right. It's like now there's like actually a, to mix metaphors, like, you know, 180 degree turn and right. kind of where they're even going. Right. Um, right. Which I think that is true because in the beginning, like, for as terrible as what he does to his daughter is, it's not done out of cruelty or he doesn't, he doesn't do it to make her suffer. He does it because to, he does it quickly to get it over with. And, you know, mm -hmm. because he feels he has to, but he doesn't do it and, for and recognition that it's not really his daughter. Right. Anymore. Right. Right. Whereas, and that is that very, clinical de detached there's a there's a thing that needs doing and i take no pleasure in it but but i will do it um whereas like that's certainly not true because he's had several opportunities in this episode to <laughs> to give justice to angel and or darla you know like he has them at their at his mercy at various points and doesn't do it you know because that's not the point anymore. And, and Angel, particularly. Like, right, right. At the beginning. Right, not so much know. Darla, but, like, the baby at the end or, you know. Like, if, right. he, if he just thought Angelus, you know, deserves to pay for what he did and the baby is clearly, you know, the Antichrist and I need to take it out, he had the opportunity to do the job there. And he doesn't, you know, because why not? Well, I... I swore that I wouldn't show mercy and I won't. So the idea, right. the suggestion being that, you know, I'm not letting them go out of any sort of mercy. I'm letting them go presumably because I will have something even worse planned later. You know, mm -hmm. it's not enough just to kill them. Sure. You know, uh, he has to sort of, I guess, find a way to sort of torture them in the same way that he was. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that sounds very much like Angelus and Darla. So there is a true kind of role reversal there, I think. Yeah, sure. Um, so, all right. Anything with... We've, we've we jumped kind around of went all bit. over with Holtz. Anything else with, like the episode in the beginning at the hotel, like Lila kind of comes in to sort of hmm. clean yeah. up her mess, but then they're still there. So she's sort of, which remember, isn't really her mess. Right. Cause right. like she, she just, it was Gavin who had like his little secret thing right. going on. And then, right. Well, and Lila it was, was kind Linwood of who like to... sent in like, other minions and stuff. So it's true. Yeah. More like Wolfram and Hart's mess. Um, but while she's there, she, you know, treats herself to the scrolls that are sort of flying around. So, um, yeah. which is the whole point of Angel going in there in the first place. So of course he, you know, escapes with his life, but doesn't, you know, get the thing that he went for. Um, you know, which is kind of funny when Wesley's like, did you get the scrolls? And he's like, no. Like, that's <laughs> a little, yeah. little distracted. Yeah. Um, so, all right. 
sticking with well, this. and and she's she's also the one who uh, you know who tells Holtz what happened to Angel with the gypsy curse and all of that too. Right, right. And does she is she the one that mentions the baby too, or does that come later? I can't remember now. Uh, I don't remember. Mm. I'm trying to look through my notes here real quick, and I don't remember. I don't know if I wrote that. I don't down. Know, I think I wrote that down either. Uh, I think maybe she did, but I don't remember for sure. It it might be in that running list of like things that she says about Angel and Darla. Right. So, one other thing with Holtz, and this is kind of crossing streams a little bit with the whole issue of the baby and the prophecy, but um, I feel like it's relevant for Holtz too, uh, which is Fred's sort of little explanation about, um, you know, because they kind of say, like, I think Darla, when she finds out about Holtz is when she says, like, oh, that's why this is happening and he's here and, you know, he's going after the baby. And Fred's, uh, you know, explanation of, um, you know, he doesn't even, or Angel says, I don't think he even knows about the baby. And Fred says, you know, he wouldn't have to. That's the tragic beauty of a cosmic convergence. He just plays his own small part. So, you know, there's more to what she says, but this idea of Holtz being a player in some sort of larger plan, you know, um, mm. I get, you know, that's a very Tolkienian idea of like, even the, the bad guys, you know, or whether or not Holtz, I don't know if Holtz is a bad guy or not, but like, even the people who are, you know, doing bad and running around thinking that they're sort of in control of things or justice or destiny or whatever it is, they might be part of, you know, a plan, but they mm -hmm. might not be playing quite the part that they think they are, you know, or even if they do evil things, those could be incorporated into larger acts of evil or good, you know, that are kind of independent of what they originally set out to do. Um, so, you know, with all the characters sort of arguing about the prophecy and what it all means, it's sort of like, you know, I guess we'll have to kind of see what part in that Holt ends up sort of playing. Sure. You know, because he sees it as, he specifically refers to, you know, uh, you know, God's plan. You know, I don't, you know, he says to Lila, you deal in man's law, I deal in God's. Um, right. But then more so in Angel, we've talked about like the powers that be. And it's like, okay, are they distinct from, if there is a God, are they distinct from him? Are their plans working with him together? What does that mean for Holtz? It, it's, you know, very twisty and confused at this point. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean we we've gotten before like that idea that there are you know maybe multiple alliances going on like you know 
we think of like you know Holtz talks about God so you think like the Christian God of course but mm-hmm. like if we have like him and then like the higher powers and like like even like Lila at one point makes a comment about like crucifixion being too Christian right like mm-hmm. like maybe there is like an actual power there you know mm-hmm. within the world of angel and whatnot that mm-hmm. that they would call you know god or the christian god or whatever and so like with all the other supernatural stuff we don't know how that fits in but yeah like holt certainly seems to be to think of himself as someone who is you know on a mission from god but at the same time like he's working for sajan right now right. and so like is that just me you know does that mean that like one of these alliances is just kind of like like it's a we're fellow travelers but maybe not you mm. know beyond this particular thing or or yeah has is Holtz actually working for God or for someone else or or does that even matter like is it is it all whatever anyway you know Right. I mean, also, he's, you know, a 18th century, you know, Englishman. Right. It could, that could just be a thing you say, you know, that doesn't mean he's literally on marching orders from God or any particular sure. being. It could just mean ideal in God's justice means, or God's law is my way of saying that I'm righteous and my vengeance is righteous and holy in the sense yeah. of it's it's right morally and that's the the orientation that i have it doesn't necessarily mean i'm literally serving a particular entity who's given me direction you know and you know when you think about like the knights of byzantium from buffy like right they referred to god and whatever and there were monks but you don't necessarily get the sense that it was the christian god right <laughs> you know sure. what i mean like yeah so yeah yeah yeah, maybe he's more of a deist. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to say. Although you would think someone who hunts vampires might have a little stronger belief in supernatural right. you know, things right. than, than most deists would. Right, right. Uh, anyhow. Um, well, and the other thing in, in Fred's little monologue about, you know, so he just plays his part. And then she says, uh, you know, maybe he finds that angels unborn child who as it turns out wasn't evil at all as we feared but actually meant to be some sort of messianic figure and holtz kills it before it's born and his vengeance triggers the end of the world so you know her little thing like okay if if tolkien is writing this story then his acts of evil end up you know uh contributing right. to a good end even if he doesn't mean them to whereas in fred's speculation maybe he's the guy who like screws it all up you know, this is, this is this, she's seeing it. Maybe the, the baby isn't bad. Maybe it's this messianic figure and crap, this bozo came in and killed it, you know, in the cradle. And then that's what's going to bring destruction on the rest of us. So, you know, he could be kind of, you know, independent of his own meaning. He could be an agent for good or bad. It depends, you know, sort of on whose plan it is that's being worked out here. Um, yeah. You know. 
yeah what what is the the evil evil may yet be good to have been and right. yet remain evil like right, exactly like the the evil is still bad but that doesn't mean that good things can't come from it right right um right but that's not the the that's not the way Fred presents it. She almost kind of no, does no, the no. opposite. You know, she kind of right. says, you know, there was a good plan and then the evil act sort of messed it all up. And now the whole thing could derail, you know, or he is part of a plan. It's just an evil plan and a plan that's working to destroy the world rather than bring it about to a happy fulfillment, you know? Right. Or he's just confused. And doesn't understand the plan <laughs> right. one way or the other. Like, Well, and he and probably that, doesn't. That's the whole, that's her thing of that's the beauty of the cosmic convergence is you don't have to understand it to be a part of it. Um, you know, you will, you will be who you are and you're going to do stuff and you're going to make particular impacts and waves in ways that you can't even, yeah. you know, foresee. Which and, is beautiful and tragic at the same time. And Gunn has kind of a similar point um, when he says uh, separately, you know, we don't we don't even know that like the powers are the ones mm -hmm. who have been protecting the baby. Like, right? What you know? It may be that Darla is carrying the thing in the prophecies, and that it's something evil protecting it because you know what he says it you know, it could be the scourge of mankind that's supposed to plunge the world into ultimate darkness. Mm -hmm. um, and then he sort of apologizes for that later. But like, that's a valid point. And yeah. I think, you know, I think ultimately it, it comes down to like, nobody really knows. And mm -hmm. so you, you know, it, it, you end up just having people who do, what they think or feel is the right thing in the moment, which mm -hmm. is all anyone can really do anyway. Cause like right. prophecies or not, you don't really know how it's all going to shake out. Right. And so you can have all the prophecies, like, you know, it's, it becomes very much a free will versus predestination. Like, like you can try to say like, Oh, well, if I know what's going to happen, then I would do something differently. But what if the very act of knowing what's going to happen causes you to you know do the thing that ends up making right. it happen right the you know, thing you're the, the thing you're trying to avoid is the thing that you end up causing right and so you still did it with free will or whatever but the prophecy comes true nonetheless right. <laughs> um so right. yeah another very you know fate versus free will sort of tolkienian Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can you can have both. <laughs> you know, you can have your fate and eat your free will too. Um, <laughs> right, right. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, to not let this entire discussion go so far afield. Like I feel like we haven't really stuck to any kind of plan. No. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Just uh, want to make sure we don't like leave any pieces out of it so like if we were sort of following holtz mm -hmm. through um we talked about angel and the hotel and lila we talked a bit about sajan i don't know that i have anything really more to say about him 
was there anything else you wanted to yeah not so much i mean like a lot of the plot exposition there and like just i mean just that general sense of they're on the same side but they don't necessarily like obviously sajan is keeping things from him to get the result he wants you know so um which again it's funny it's not that the things he learns changes his mind it's just that they change his the way he goes about what he wants to do you know like you said right it's not that he suddenly thinks they're uh you know nice people it's just that he wants to kill them in slower more painful ways now than they they were before sure so it doesn't change their relationship but you know holtz and sajan end up sort of bickering over that you know So, so then we get, you know, so, so then we hold his new plan right now, now that he knows what he's up against. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with some help from a uh, 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 scoundrel, you know, worker demon. Right. Like uh, one of Lauren's contractors (laughs) sells them out. Yeah. Uh, They, uh, they find, uh, they find out where Angel and Darla go, um, which is, of course, Caritas. Mm-hmm. And the recently re-remodeled <laughs> Caritas. I know. I have learned at the end, maybe we should just talk about it here. It's like, of course, the whole thing gets blown to smithereens like two minutes after he finishes his renovation. So, oh. Yeah. Yeah. He can't Poor catch Lauren. a break. And, and, and the... The worst part of it is, is that it's like even protected at this point. But right. there's like a loop. There's a loophole. Right. You can apparently still throw bombs into it. Right. I liked his uh, Lauren's explanation. Like when he's like, "Oh gosh, where is it? I have to find it." When he's like, "It's a thing with the door and the stairs and the world and the thing." Like, and like you kind of just get the gist of it. Just you can put two and two together and realize, oh. You can throw things in, like Gunn says, but, like, hearing him try to explain it as, like, the building is crashing down is kind of funny. Yeah. Well, and it's, like... And it's, like, that techno babble of... Right. Oh, yeah, we put up the shields, but we need this thing to happen, so explain it away. Quick, say words about the thing in the world and the thing. Like, who cares? Just keep going. (laughs) Like, don't look at it too closely. Um, Which is amusing. But, yeah, I did feel bad for Lauren that you know uh you know he seems fated to have uh a destroyed Caritas at the moment yeah uh um so then he you know goes around back to the alley to sort of take care of whoever makes it you know out of the building and that's when well, he, he yeah, finds you- them you, you get, like, the Holtz, like, you know, striding through the flame. Like, the very this is, like, his Clint Eastwood moment, sure. right? Like, yeah. he's striding through the flames with his crossbow and, mm-hmm. you know, very much a man of purpose coming to, you know, wreak his justice on others. Right. Um, yeah, and then he gets back there and, of course, you know, you see... He doesn't see Darla die. Right. I don't, 
Like, I don't think he just, so. He comes through and sees Angel holding a baby. Right. Um, and kind of lets them go. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and him and Fred, who's who's there with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Holtz, uh, like you said, like there's this... We haven't seen the last of him. Mm-mm. Like, I don't think you would expect that no. to be the case, given his sort of final line, like right. you said before. But, uh, yeah, like, like it's it's been a lot of... Oh, I mean, in a sense... Well, I don't know. Maybe we should talk about Darla. Because, like, I was going to say, in a sense, like, he gets one of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, sure. Like... Like, Darla dies, which is what he's ultimately aiming for. It's just that it's not at his hand. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't know how uh, appeased he will be. At right, that, right. Um, given that she uh, basically commits suicide, although she's dead yeah. already. So it's not really suicide, I guess. I don't know, like, what right. the how do you... technical term of that would yeah. be. Yeah. Um... Sewed dust. <laughs> Vampicide. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, yes, let's talk about Angel and Darla and their little family unit, I guess. Um, I mean, mm. I feel like we talked about some around the prophecies, but, you know, what what else do we have to say? I mean, so Fred and Gunn both kind of give their speculation about, you know... Um, you know, which, like you said, kind of what they say is similar on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, they both kind of say, Fred says, well, maybe it's a messiah. And, you know, Gunn says, maybe it's the opposite of that. You know, like, so on the one hand, they're kind of agreeing about the unpredictability of the prophecy, but so much so that they can't even come to a conclusion on how to even feel about like the baby itself. Um, And whereas like Angel is, he joins in a little bit on the speculating, but Angel is very much focused on, and maybe rightly so, focused on just the baby as a baby, like not the subject of a prophecy, but you know, a child that, you know, is at least so far innocent and, you know, should be sort of taken care of. Um, mm. You know, he, <laughs> uh, why is it everyone insists on planning my son's future before he's even born? Which makes it sound like they're talking about like what college he's going to go to, but like, right. Is he like, going to be a doctor? <laughs> right. or like, yeah. Right. But there's still that thing of you're all talking about my baby in the abstract of what he will grow into. And right now I am talking about my baby as like, you know, a, an actual newborn, which is defenseless and which is about to come into the world and needs to be cared for and supported. And who cares what it becomes later? This is what it is right now. Um, yeah. So, which, you know, as the parent, that is only right. Yeah. Sure. So we also get some stuff about the prophecies with the scrolls because, as I said, Lila nicks them 
and takes them to, you know, a, a, a guy who can uh, translate and transcribe them. Um, mm-hmm. So he kind of picks up on some nuances that, you know, Wesley didn't, which is that, you know, which of course, in retrospect, makes all kinds of sense about, you know, there, there will be no birth, you know, when the sky opens and the heavens weep, there will be no birth, only death. So of course, that's exactly what happens. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, no actual birth. It's just Darla dies and disappears and leaving the baby. And there's the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about Darla. Okay. Um, leading up to her final decision, um, because I felt like we got a little, few little hints in the episode before of her maybe having, you know, more genuine feelings or emotion than she would care to admit, but obviously much more so in this episode. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a pretty, um nicely written section about of her kind of explanation of how she is able to feel you know love or you know feel things for this baby when she's you know shouldn't have that capability you know and that whole section of you know I haven't been nourishing it it's been nourishing me you know Mm. it's just a nice little phrasing um and a nice reversal and kind of like within the, the techno babbly world of the show, like makes sense. Like when she carries this life within her, it it's kind of like she vicariously has a soul herself and is capable of, you know, human feelings and emotions that she wouldn't be capable of otherwise. Um, sure. Which is interesting because like, even if you take that back to sort of the, the humorous stuff at the beginning of like, you know, her getting mad about not being able to breathe to right. do Lamaze, right? right? Like, and then like, you know, throwing everyone away from the car and then immediately like breaking into tears. Like, right, right. that's like, you get that they're going for sort of like, this is like, oh, that sort of stereotypical pregnant woman. Right. Angry whose woman hormones labor, yeah. are. Yeah you know, all over the place kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then you realize like, oh, this is actually like, this is where she's getting all these feelings is actually from the baby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, it's not woman, uh, you know, one, cause the baby's male. So mm-hmm. like, it, it's not just that, but it's just, it's a human thing. It's humans are emotional and have, right. you know, these sorts of feelings and frustrations and right. all of this stuff. And, Maybe as a vampire for the last 400 years, she had forgotten, (laughs) you know, and and not really known how to experience all of that. So um, when you get to that, you know, the feelings of love and whatever, um, there is, you know, sort of a progression there. And, you know, you also get the sense that that like the baby is dying, right? Like. Mm -hmm in part because of that, right? Like she's still a vampire. So there's a sense in which even not that she's meaning to do it, but even the fact that she's sort of being nourished by the right. soul of sucking her child, the life out of it. Yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah. Like she's sucking the life and, and soul from it. Right. And, you know, 
that's sort of the thing that has her, you know, she wants to have the baby, but she knows that once she has the baby, she won't have access to these feelings or whatever, and she'll revert to yeah. the Darla we all know and hate. Um, and, you know, and so that that's the problem. But at the same time, you know, she doesn't necessarily want to give up her life to, you know, for the baby, but that's, you know, that's, that's the ultimate sacrifice, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the, the thing is the willingness to give up your right. own existence for someone you love. Right. Well, and there's the double kind of meaning there of, of referring to her inability to nourish it. She says like, Oh, some mother can't even get offer it life. But that's like exactly what she does at the end is, not just offer it like nourishment, but literally gives her life for it. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. You know, by taking herself away, she is allowing it to survive. Um, and I feel like too, I want to, I hesitate to go too far with it because we are talking about like a vampire here. Um, so I don't want to like, you know, stretch the metaphor too far, but for some of her sections, it was reminding me of okay is there a a comparison to sort of postpartum either depression or psychosis here of this feeling of sure i mean that other than it's not postpartum but you know what i mean well but more so what what made me think of it is is the the in the leading up to the birth the awareness of the possibility of it and the fear of that you know like the this kind of you know, which not everybody goes through or they don't all do to the same degree, but you know, there are the, there are the cases where it's like perhaps after a second birth or something, you might know that this is coming and Mm. feel worried about how you'll react in the days afterwards. Like, you know, her things about, um, you know, when she says like, I won't be able to love it. I won't even remember that I loved it, you know, or being worried about what she might do to it. Um, that for some people is like a very real fear, even in the days leading up to a birth. So, um, you know, again, like, don't want to take, make too much of that, but like, I feel like there's a sort of some similar feelings, you know, of being worried about what your sort of your own inability to sort of take care of a baby or even maybe even worry about how you might react to having one. So. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, besides the, uh, well, besides the, um, the line about there will be no birth. There's also other little bits of, you know, uh, unconscious foreshadowing in there of, you know, Fred saying she's immortal. So that's in her favor health wise, you know, so this kind of sense of, well, Darla can't die. So at least there's that, you know, kind of Mm. ironically, you know, putting you just off the scent slightly as to what's coming. Um, you know, and yeah, it's like if she, she in the moment anyway, has this baby inside her and loves it and knows that, you know, she's killing it. She does the only loving thing she can think to do, you know? Hmm. Um, which is sort of a sad end for, you know, for Darla. Um, 
I mean, happy in a sense that, you know, this is one of the big villains of the series and she's sort of going out in a moment of self-sacrifice, yeah. which is the, the, this kind is of her... lovely, but um, very disturbing at the same time. Like the way she just does it and then she's gone and there's like the baby in the street. That's like a disturbing image, you know? Sure. I, I think of it in some ways as like her Darth Vader moment of like, sure. at, yeah. at you know, at the last moment, you know, he becomes Anakin again. And right. that's kind of the big, you know, re- right. redemption, you know, or right. whatever of, of Darth Vader. And, and so this right. is, this is Darla's redemption. Yeah. Okay. So maybe she didn't technically have a soul, but with, you know, the soul that uh, the, the amount of soul that she got from her baby, she's able to sort of do the noble, mm-hmm. you know, thing and yeah, all of that. And, and of course, sort of her last words to Angel are that, you know, this, this child is the one good thing we ever did together. Mm-hmm. The only good thing, you make sure to tell him that. Mm-hmm. And so trying to, uh, you know, make sure that the way that she feels that, you know, that that's sort of, that's her last thing, right? Like it does, anything you did before now doesn't matter so long as you go out and you're you're good at the end kind of thing. Well, and that's Angel's response to her question of why would anyone ever bring a baby into a terrible world? And he says, like, to make it better. Like, mm. um, you know, I mean, sometimes you can get into a tricky territory of people having babies to fix things, you know, which mm-hmm. is not always great. But um, that wasn't what this was, they di- didn't intend to make a baby at all. I think what he means by it is the baby itself will, it's not they're using the baby to fix anything or justify anything or whatever that they did, but that just the baby itself is bringing something new and hopefully better into the world. Um, you know, and that they can feel like they contributed something of good value and not just were, you know, uh, you know, bringers of death and destruction. So, sure. Anything else for Angel and Darla? No, I mean we already sort of talked about how Holtz lets Angel go. So, I think that's really it at this point. Okay. Um, I don't have a lot for the other characters. I mean, some of the most interesting stuff like we talked about was like what they say about the prophecy. Um, Mm. like, which I think the fact that Fred kind of sees that maybe the baby's the Messiah and Gunn sees maybe it's, you know, Satan incarnate, like, you know, it kind of suggests certain kind of slight differences in their personalities but it's not so much about them it's more i feel like like the last episode the rest of them are kind of servicing the plot a little bit more um yeah no i think i mean it's not bad it's just it's not really about them so right you you sort of have to have someone to specify each sort of viewpoint right right? like so it's not and yeah like maybe guns a little more of the 
glass you know, half full. Bitter, yeah. bitter, you know, I've lived on the streets guy right. and, and that's all fine. But right. like I don't I don't know that it's yeah, I don't I, I think it's like you said, it's servicing the plot more than whatever. And Gunn even kind of tries to take it back, you know, right. what he says. So right. I don't know how strongly we want to hold him to those No. Memories. Well, and they're all just speculating anyway. It's not like any of them are convinced by any of their particular arguments. It's just sort of all hypothetical. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have anything to say. Like, I, like Wesley and Cordy, I don't really have a lot to say at all anyway. Like, yeah. Um, they're just kind of there and there's some, there's a couple of funny moments or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, minor things, but nothing really else. So, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, we, I mean, like I said, we haven't seen the last of Holt as I think is implied at the end there. Um, yeah. and, uh, and now Angel has a son and yeah. single, so dad. Sort, single dad, single dad, Angel. Sort of summing up too. Um, apparently, David Boreanaz's first child, or maybe only child—I don't actually know how many children he has—was uh, born like very shortly after this episode. Oh, interesting. Uh, All right. Apparently. So I'm so, sure that would have helped inform yeah, maybe his there's performance. Some informing, yeah. Yeah. Going on here. Right. Right. He can relate <laughs> to it in a way that you can. I think if you haven't had a child. Separate from all that and just sort of bringing up funny stuff. I do love the moment, too, where he kind of shows up in the alley and is like, hey, what are we all looking at? Yeah. That's <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of a yeah. funny moment. There. Yeah. yeah, like, while you've been gone, all hell has been breaking loose. And yeah. Yeah. We, they don't even we, have the energy to we, explain we, it to him. We were fighting off these demons and then Darla drove away. And... Yeah. All right. Well, on to uh, BSG then okay uh, if we're if we're good you had yep. some production notes for this i believe as well i did um where is it i'm scrolling through hold on crap where are my notes here they are um so i wanted to point out the writer uh because it's the first one he's done uh, his name is mark for Haydn, um and i want to definitely point him out because he becomes like not just like a writer but you know one of the producers of the series and like for the rest of the series and Mm. i think i counted up he has a total of nine episodes to his credit so a lot um you know because he's only this is only halfway it's already halfway through season two so um we're almost halfway so you know between now and the end of season four um he has a fair amount of things to his credit Um, and he's, you know, one of these people who's written for a million things like Smallville and Heroes and Falling Skies and Constantine, Mm. and apparently now is (laughs) one of the writers on Daredevil. So, um, a lot of other genre, uh, fare, which is nice. Um, which which makes sense. There's a lot of Whedon alum on Daredevil. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, crossing over between camps there. Um, So... I I wouldn't be surprised if Grimm was on that list, too, because that's... uh, Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. I I don't know that I... I certainly didn't write down everything. I picked some of the, you know, bigger titles. Um, Mm. 
So also wanted to point out, uh, you know, the, the, like you could miss it, the introduction of, uh, the, the wonderful Lucy Lawless, um, you know, who was certainly an important figure in my childhood (laughs) and, um, and which don't forget, uh, was the show that David Icke, you know, produced before Battlestar. So I think that's the the connection there is this is an actor that he had worked closely with before when you're looking to bring someone in for a, a guest role that may or may not have more, you know, uh, room to develop further in the series, she seems like a good choice. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Did you have any Lucy Lawless thoughts to, uh, I mean, I've had or... plenty of Lucy Lawless thoughts over the years, but <laughs> How would we I mean, all? that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. Right. Um, yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, she's, she's a great actress. Yeah, sure. So, uh, I actually, I never, I honestly was never into Xena. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, her work in, in other stuff, um, this, this in Parks and Rec, in particular sure yeah that was a uh, weird cameo that was like every so yeah. often when you go back and like i binged parks and rec like earlier this year and every so often it would be like the most random person turned up and she was one of them yeah it's like yeah i never would have put lucy lawless you know um but like i mean it wasn't just like one episode or anything like she no. showed up a number of times and and yeah um of course marrying ron swanson is right right uh great um yeah, and she like she turned she's turned up in a number of other things too, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. Well, Herc and Zena were certainly things that uh, were watched more than a few times in my house uh, when in the '90s, whenever they were on. So um, I have mm-hmm. fond memories of that. Um, sure. So sure. yeah, um, where do you want to start? All right, so, well, let's start right there with uh, sort of the setup, but, you know, to, to start with the setup, we have to talk about Deanna, mm-hmm. who Lucy Lawless plays. So, um, yeah, we get, so we've already kind of gotten some insight uh, into the journal, journalism, uh, or, or the, like, the, the, journalists i guess of the the fleet right so we've gotten um like what was that that one episode where you know you have like the three talk show hosts and you you right, have sort right. of like the the quintessential leftist rightist and moderate right, sort the kind of, of political pundits yeah yeah um but then we've also of course seen like you know the press rooms where like like ty when he announces his you know martial law and and even um Adama sort of addressing the press and stuff. And I mean, you know, there's 50,000 people or so, I guess we're down to like 40 some thousand people or so right, right at this right. point. Right. Um, I, I don't know if we have the, an exact number right now, but uh, I always, I always wondered like, like, I don't, I, I'm curious to know what like the actual percentage of like, press people to other people there are in like the real world and to see if that sure. holds up in like the BSG. Cause it does seem like there's an awful a lot, lot of, of them. Yeah. Press 
uh, just sort of hanging about and, you know, like, like they were the ones who made it, uh, um, well, you know, uh, b- besides BSG. Let me, let me, <laughs> uh, let me, uh, speculate. This would be my rationalization of that. They were having the decommissioning ceremony for the Galactica at the time. So is this the press sure. that were covering the event, you know? I mean, maybe and, a few of them were off scattered around on different ships and sort of cobbled together. But is it because this was a particularly, you know, like you had Doral like giving a tour for the press of this is the museum. This is where they did this, you know, and Adama gives yeah, yeah, a speech yeah. and we have a whole ceremony. Um, so maybe more than the average percentage, you know, survived, you know, more than would have otherwise. That That's fair. That's fair. Um so anyway, so which kind of makes now, you wonder where is Deanna in that? You know. Well, yeah. So okay, thinking about that because like she's more of a investigative right, right journalist, right? So I don't, I wouldn't see her like right. She's not covering one who the daily gets news. Sent, yeah. yeah, she she's not someone who gets sent to like a press junket on a decommissioned ship, right? Kind of thing. Right. Um, although at the same token, maybe that. It's hard to say, was that what she was before or is that what she has become? Sure. Since, yeah. And we don't, you know, we don't know. The yeah. fleet, like maybe, maybe there was a market vacuum, you know, and, <laughs> and so like right. she's stepping in to fulfill that role and right. whatever. Um, so yeah, so whatever the case, like you do get the sense that she's more of an investigative person and, and somehow has gotten her hands on video of, um, the shooting aboard the Gideon when Ty was sort of doing his, mm-hmm. you know, nobody, nobody withholds, you know, supplies from my ship. Yeah. Uh, ordeal. Right. Uh, which resulted in at least four civilian casualties, mm-hmm. um, deaths. Anyway, there may have been others wounded. Um, right. and, uh, she's putting together a story when all of a sudden in storms, some, colonial marines um sort of demanding but like not quite demanding her presence like Mm -hmm. like they come in all in force and then it's like well we're not really arresting you per se yeah (laughs) you know we're just like detaining you or like (laughs) transporting you you know to colonial one kind of politely you know Um, requesting yeah. You know, with our guns. Pol- politely and strongly requesting right. your presence. Um, but she goes for, you know, whether we don't actually learn if it's by force or by choice. Yeah. Um, seems to be like it's forced that your choice will be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, to go. But uh, uh, she goes and, of course, meets with Rosalind and Adama, who are you know, have a sort of begrudging unified front of we want, you know, we want to stop the, uh, you know, division within the ranks of the fleet Mm -hmm. uh, that has seemed to crop up and and perhaps with rightful, not not rightful, but like justifiable, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, um, reasons and so her only sort of instruction is to 
write a or not write but like you know film a piece that will tell um sort of the story of the galactica um right like humanize the the people yeah right and and you know she's assured that like she'll be given access and um you know that that you know it won't just uh you know that that it won't you know it's not going to be a puff piece but it's you know mm. you know it's something that needs to be real like it's it also can't sort of be preordained by her own right you know preconceptions either so right uh which is almost immediately taken back by adama when he says <laughs> yeah any anything that compromises ship safety will be cut which i mean i think I mean, Adama hasn't always been the best judge of things, but like, mm -hmm. I think we can, we as viewers can believe his sincerity in saying that like, it'll be limited to things that compromise ship safety, mm -hmm. but to an investigative journalist who already has sort of a poor view of, you know, the military tactics and stuff, like, right. I'm not sure that that comes across in quite the way Adama maybe even means it right, <laughs> too. Right. Uh, and as in like, is he saying he'll cut whatever he feels like cutting right. kind of thing. Right. Um, like we get, we'll have final edit and everything. Um, you know, which, which they do in the sense that she shows it to them before it's allowed to be sure. shown to the rest of the fleet. And, and I was going to say, which Ty certainly would approve of. Yeah. Having. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, like there's, you know, you can see how that would be ominous coming from Adama. Right. Right. Well, and you get the little good cop, bad cop thing of like Roslyn kind of being much more, you know, uh, ingratiating and reasonable and, you know, and, and then Adama like scowling over like he, you know, she twisted yeah. his arm into this and everything. And, and, you know, when, uh, when Deanna says, like, well, they have good reason for, you know, uh, being wary of the military. And Rosalind says, in some cases with good reason. And you get him, like, scowling, like, no, there's no good reason. Like, you know, yeah, right. don't say anything bad about, like, he can't stand any of the the criticism from these civilians who have no idea what they're talking about. is just, you know, uh, unreasonable to him. Um but yeah. I know, and you also get the sense of, uh, it's kind of interesting how it kind of starts with Deanna. So it's like, okay, it's a character we've never seen before, but we're kind mm. of in her viewpoint. Like we start with her and get taken in to see them. So we don't hear the conversations that led to this. Um, but I think you can kind of infer that like, this is Adama and Rosalind doing damage control for their own mistakes because- who split the fleet? It was them. You know, it's it's Adama who, like, has his military, like, annoyed at all of these civilians. And it's Rosalind who has the civilians mistrustful of the overbearing military. And mm. it's really, they've, okay, they've brought everyone back together. But that doesn't mean that everyone wants to be back together, you know? Sure. Like, she, you know, Ros Rosalind leaving stirred up a certain amount of resentment and you know like i think that's what she's alluding to when she says 
you need to do this now before we tear each other apart. Like, I think all is forgiven between Adama and Rosalind, but not necessarily, not everybody feels quite the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know that, like, it's worth sort of talking through Diana through the episode. Like, it, this is a tough episode, you know. Yeah. This is a tough episode to sort of talk through because we get, like, all of the characters plus some. Plus, like, at least a couple new ones. Right. <laughs> who yeah. we've never seen before. Right. And, and some who we've seen only briefly right. who we get more in-depth uh, information about and stuff. So, uh, in thinking through, um, you kind of came up with the term of plot characters. Like, there's a couple where there's actually like a story to kind of go with them. And then mm -hmm. we've got a bunch where we just sort of get interviews mm -hmm. with them, but like we delve into some more backstories of mm -hmm. some characters that we know a little bit and, and some that we don't really know as much, but um, can at least start, you know, filling out the characters a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, definitely want to try to go through the plot characters because I feel like, you know, that's where we get the story. And mm -hmm. then hopefully we'll we'll have time to go through all the different interviewees and talk about them too. Yeah. Um, and uh, and do that that way. So uh, the first plot character I want to talk about is actually Kat. Um, so I, I was surprised at how much... I didn't remember hmm. that there was this much about her in right. this episode. Like, right. Like, we actually get even, like, scenes that seem to be about maybe some of the more well-known characters. Right. Tend, are tend to secretly be, about are her. Are more yeah. about yeah. her. Like, yeah. like, you get, like, her arguing with the chief. But, like, you see it, like, as the chief, like, being the one to inspect and whatever. And so you're kind of, like, mm -hmm. initially thinking that it's, like, his story. Right. And then, like, it's, like you know, Kat argues with Starbuck and then it's about Starbuck and Lee, but they're talking about Kat, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, like even that sort of thing is like her, you know, it's really kind of about her, even mm -hmm. though we're getting all these maybe more familiar characters or even like, you know, she's running through the halls and only a towel and runs into the quarters and like, she's the one in front of the video camera, whatever. And yeah, okay, you have like the little side look from Paladino, which you find right. out later is important, you know, and you have like Lee sort of stepping in front of the camera, but but the reason he steps in front of the camera is to sort of defend Kat and the others, like, right. you know, from the intrusions of Deanna and her crew. And and so again, even though like, like yeah, okay, you get Kat like flashing the camera or whatnot, but mm -hmm. like, that's the little bit we see of her, but the rest of it's kind of about her, or at least about her as a representative of all the other, right? You know, uh, lower, you know, lower officers or, or right. pilots or whatever, you know. So, um, yeah. And anyway, it's yeah. it's subtle in the way that it, without realizing it is about her, it lays the groundwork for her sort of emotional breakdown and the revelation about the fact that she's overdosing on, you know, cause we saw, was it only like in like 33 where we saw them take stimulants and 
you know, and Starbucks sure. said yeah. to stay awake and Starbucks is like, I don't take those things because they are bad for you and they mess with your, all these things. Then you find out Kat's been sort of hoarding them and popping them like Tic Tacs, you know, to, yeah. to get you, over the stress. And, you, you know, you say only in 33, but that was a season and a half ago now. Well, right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know that we've seen them since then. Not that I can think of. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think, I think you're right. Like, Right. It was specifically because the Cylons come every 33 minutes. Right. That, exactly. You know, we need to stay awake. To stay awake and, and yeah. take them. Yeah. No, you're right about that. I, and, and so, right. right. Like you kind of get the feeling that like, oh, by now it's so it's routine, you know, they have their schedules, right. whatever, but you get, you get that like, yeah, cats like been more confrontational and like Starbucks says, like, you know, oh, it's been, you know, for the last week I've been having problems with her and mm -hmm. she's lashing out at everyone. And 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 Lee tries to play it off as like, oh, well, you know, there's always confrontations between, you know, pilots and the deck crew. Like, that's mm -hmm. just, like, he just sort of takes it as that's the natural order of things when, you know, where a Starbuck kind of sees more of a pattern and, right. Right. you know, a problem with it. And so... um yeah, no, it's it, like, like there is that sort of build up to it, and and you're right, like, like you don't maybe realize the full implications of, you know, all of the sort of side stuff and and whatnot until you really get her story, you know, more in depth about and and even like, like you you know you get her flying. Mm. And, you know, trying to land once and then has to wave off. And then you get, like, the interview, right? Like, so it's, they're sort of interlaced with each other a bit. Right. And um, she's even kind of starting to flip out in the interview. Like, you can see she's, you know, she's always kind of uh, a big personality. But, like, you're starting to get that sense of, okay, what's going on? This is more than usual. Why is she, like, like, all she's doing is giving an interview. And she's, you know... um sort of having this emotional breakdown about the stress of the job and everything. Um, and both about how awesome it is, but also how deadly and dangerous it is, you know, like mm -hmm. all of her emotions are sort of heightened and, you know. Um, right. Right. And she talks about like, yeah, like, Oh, it's better than sex and whatever. When you do, right. you know, when you hit it, but then, Cut you to know, her she, screaming as she crashes. <laughs> you know? Right. And, you know, or, you know, talking about all of the things that you have to do in the split seconds that you have to do them, you know, between flight check and weapons check and communications and this and that. Um, and then, yeah, like you find out, like, she actually hasn't been very good at all of this stuff because she's been having to rely on, not that she hasn't, not, not that she's not good at it, but that she's had to rely on the drugs and, and whatever, for whatever reason, whether it's because there isn't anyone else to replace her or whatever. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, she said she hadn't gotten sleep and felt like she was losing her edge and she didn't know what to do, which, you know, seemed like common things for people who take sort of stimulants and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like even, even as mundane as like, you know, I need to take caffeine pills to stay up and study, you know, right. like, cause I didn't want to lose my 
scholarship or whatever, you know, like, like whatever the reason is like, there's, that seems like pretty common Mm -hmm. excuses or, or explanations or whatever you want to call them, um, for doing that sort of thing. So, so yeah, like, and obviously this is one person, you know, like that's the point is again, we're putting the humanizing face on it, but Mm -hmm. you get, you get the sense that there's, they're all sort of like one step away from cat. Right. Like, like, like she might be the first one, but certainly isn't the only one. Right. And so you get like, you know, uh, you get like Kelso and Hilo and, mm. you know, others who are kind of like, like Gata, you know, like we've never seen him smoke. Before, Smoking. Right? right. Right. Like, and, and it's, something right. that he's right. he says he does to try to cope with the stress and it doesn't work but it doesn't mean he stops doing it right. like he's he's still smoking right um and you get like Hilo who's talking about you know how they try to burn off or turn off the human part of you you know because that's that's what'll get you killed but you know when you're out in the field it's not that easy and of course Kilo talking about being out, out in, the, in field, the field, you know, he knows like, what of he speaks. Yeah. yeah, Like, like you don't think of like, yeah. Out in a field, you know, counting, you know, sunflowers, like, you, you know, you think that he's, Oh yeah. He was just on Caprica and, right. you know, for all intents and purposes by himself. Um, so yeah. And then you get Kelso who's, mm. uh, one of the Marines who was involved with the shooting on Gideon and has, you know, 10 stitches that say he was under attack. And, you know, like that frustration that he feels that, you know, the people calling sort of for his blood Mm. when in fact, like he has never been trained for crowd control. And honestly, like that order should have never been given in the first place. Mm. And, you know, sort of expresses that frustration not that he's the one trying to kill ty but that mm-hmm. he's not surprised that there's is someone who's doing that you know again mm-hmm. it's that one step away maybe from right being the one to sort of go ballistic and right right um, i i'm not doing it but i sympathize with it i can certainly understand yeah. what would drive a person right to it and um so that brings in ty which is sort of our second uh, plot uh, character in this story, um, which it sort of starts with like typical tie, right? Like not really, you know, pretty annoyed at just sort of the presence of Deanna and her crew and whatever. Um, I guess even before that, like you get like the call, uh, so someone presumably Ellen, I think, right, calls like the CIC and Ty runs and finds out, and you get this fragment of a poem, uh, from the darkness you must fall, and mm. and so, you know, we don't necessarily know what it means, although we get Starbuck quoting it later. Um, Starbuck very happily quoting it later, asking then if she could be considered a suspect. Right, right. Uh, since, she, since she clearly knows the poem from which that line was taken. Um, well, and like, just a quick note, kind of the only character note about Starbuck really is like, 
that continuing surprise of her artistic side, you know, okay. She mm. loves music. She paints. Oh, she knows poetry too. Like you don't think of Starbuck as the artsy type, but she is sort of, you know, sure. surprisingly deep where those things are concerned. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, and you know, certainly she sympathizes with anybody who has it in for Ty. So, um, right. You know, is joking. <laughs> you, you almost I, I get this. You almost get, get the this... sense that she that she learned that poem just so she could. Annoy sure. Ty. I mean, sure. no, she she knew it already, obviously. But like, right. like that had she known that that would have been the thing that you know would come in handy, like right. that would have made it even sweeter to right. know right. the poem. Oh, if I only had thought of it, you know. Um. So yeah. Uh. All right. Sorry, I distracted us. Where where did we leave off with Ty? So yeah, talking about Ty, just um, so he goes, you know, at at Ellen's call and uh, you know sees this fragment of the poem written on the mirror, and it's like they clearly take it as a death threat, right? Like right. it's not just like some random, you know, prank or something. Um, also, like given Ellen's manipulation and stuff, like I think it's done in such a way where you're not entirely sure if it's just her sure. and her again, you know what I mean? Like sure. Because you do get other conversations, right, between her and Ty in the episode, which are not really other conversations because it's the same thing over, right? It's her mm. trying to, you know, get Ty to sort of undercut Bill's authority, Adama's authority, and, you know, she's the one who wants Ty to go interview with Deanna and hmm. prove prove he's not afraid and that kind of thing. Um, so you get that kind of stuff from, from Ellen here, too. <coughs> uh, but at the same time, it's like, well... You know, I don't. I don't know. Like, it seems like something she could certainly be capable of doing. Sure. Uh, you know, on her own, and so I think there is that level of: is there really someone out there trying to get Ty, or is this just Ellen, sort of, you know, in her own sort of perverse way, drumming up interest around Ty and maybe sympathy for him? Sure. Um, sure. Anyway. Uh, turns out that's not the case so maybe i'm just cynical uh but yeah so uh ties you know again so like he's he's sort of recovering from his brief attempt at dictatorship and uh or, or not really attempt i mean he kind of was uh his his brief you know seat on the throne as it were and uh so apparently there's to be another meeting on cloud nine. Uh, and now Adama is, you know, chooses Ty to be the delegate and um, sort of calls Ty out a bit, says, you know, you've been doing this too long to be worried about ulterior motives. Uh, you're going because you're not afraid and people should see that. Plus it'll give people a chance to vent their feelings instead of seething in private. So sort of, you know, providing a release valve, <laughs> right. um, you know, so that things don't blow up later. Um, right. Give them a chance to vent 
their frustration at him a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, and not, and try to, cause that's part of Deanna's thing is why are you, you know, protecting the people who are behind this, you know, violence. And so, you know, part of, you know, Adama kind of says, well, I, I can't charge or fire them because, you know, we need them. But, mm -hmm. you know, if he can kind of not totally throw Ty to the wolves, but kind of show that, you know, he's not just going to hide him away from all, you know, consequences and scrutiny, you know, then that sort of, like you said, it relieves some of that tension too. Yeah. Um, and it also, he kind of says like, it's, you know, for your R and R, like, you know, it, it was, it was a little, it was a tough being a dictator. So, you know, go take some time off to, don't don't go to the bar, but you know, relax yeah. and sleep in, and you know, go swimming or whatever. Um, yeah, uh, right. And Cloud Nine is, of course, the sort of pleasure vessel too. It's right. like like right. that's the. I mean, it's it's Cloud Nine. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, you're on. You're literally on Cloud Nine. Yeah. Um, so that and, well, goes poorly, right? Because. One Sorry, thing I want to one thing I want to point out too, I feel like is one thing to Ty's credit, which I think brings it back to Ellen and the whole fight they keep having over and over again is that I feel like he does accept responsibility in the sense that every time she tries to say like they're trying to throw you under the bus or you know, you did the right thing and you did all this. Like, he kind of keeps trying to say to her, like, nope, I was in charge. It was on my watch. He doesn't necessarily regret his decisions, but he's at least trying to not dodge from, you know, all of their consequences and everything. Um, sure. So, for what that's worth, you know, he's not being totally weaselly about it. He's not saying... You know, he's not trying to pass the buck, which is, I guess, you know, a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, so the attempt to visit Cloud9 goes awry when the raptor turns out to be sabotaged. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, poorly sabotaged, too, right? Like, Chief says, like, it just, it looks like someone took a hammer to it. So it's not like... This isn't like a subtle, right. you know, like thing, which, you know, if you think back to like Boomer and like the explosives, right? Like this was like someone stole some blasting caps and like expertly hid them like somewhere where it would trigger right, in a particular circumstance or whatever. Now, now you have, uh, this is just like clearly someone just taking out frustration and hoping it, you know goes mm. poorly for right. the target. Um, yeah, so uh, then Ty, you know, after after the, uh, you know, malfunction with the Raptor, then Ty decides to take up Deanna's uh, request for a uh, interview mm -hmm. um and so she's very sly of course gives him a drink right says she just wants to keep it casual um has it has pours herself a drink right. as well and doesn't but, 
Drink never yeah. sips from it. Right. And sort of eggs tie on to the point where he becomes violent with her and right. pushes her and right. gives Which her is sort of exactly what she was sort of expecting oh, yeah. and hoping for, you know. Yeah. Which, you know, again goes back to like, okay, maybe maybe she should be focusing a little more on like that you know, the aspect of not um having a sort of narrative going into it but at the same time like this is ty he is a mean drunk <laughs> and like even adama knows it mm -hmm. and it's like you get the sense that it's all the setup to ask adama that question right mm -hmm. of of like you were saying like why is ty not being charged with anything and, mm -hmm. and so she gets her answer for that um so in the end, of course, when when Deanna shows the final product, Ty just absolutely hates it, right? It's a hatchet job. Right. The fleet already thinks we're a bunch of trigger-happy assassins. This just confirms it. Um, which goes to show, like, did he even watch the thing? You know right. what I mean? Like, right. Like, because it doesn't show that. It shows that, you know, there are people trying to deal with stuff. And yes, in some cases they're wrong and and deanna gives the whole sort of like follow-up on you know how the mistakes are the exception and blah 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 mm -hmm. but um doesn't matter to ty like he just any any flaw real or perceived is of a sign of weakness for the fleet and so you know it it it, it doesn't he doesn't see the the sort of PR value of this, right? Right. Um, which fortunately, it's not up to him. Right. Both, both Adama and Rosalind see it and like it. And right. Very good. Right. Well, and there's some projection of his own guilt onto there of like, you know, sure. other other people watch it and and relate to the flaws in the human beings, whereas he watches it and sees his own mistakes sort of reflected back onto him you know like of course people are going to think we're trigger happy assassins because that's how it's you know feels to me in the moment that's how i feel because of what has happened you know um whereas i think if your conscience is a little cleaner it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily come across that same way um sure sure So yeah, and then we get uh, the oh yeah, the, the I didn't wrap up the assassination, like part, the confrontation, right? So, you, right, right. So yeah, so this is interesting too because then you get um, Deanne is actually the one who figures out that it's right. Paladino, right? Right. Um, too late, of course, because Paladino's already in Ty's room. Right. Right. Uh, he ties up he ties up uh Ellen right and hits Ty on the back of the head and knocks him out and uh sort of threatens him, tells him, you know, yells at him a bit, and Ty you know, in typical fashion you're not sure is he being rash or is he being strategic. Mm -hmm. But one way or the other, you know, he sort of puts his head against Paladino's gun and, mm -hmm. you know, tells him to shoot if he's gonna 
course he doesn't and then ty takes the gun away and you know but at the same time so this you know this is this is the thing that annoys me about the uh uh problem of ty because like you have like lee who has previously in what 99.9 percent of people would consider is a good reason you know puts his gun against ty's head and ty goes you know ape whatever right and lee gets put in the brig and this and that you have someone like paladino though doing mm-hmm. the same thing you know potentially even worse because like yeah, ty he says, might actually like, this do is, it yeah th- well and like ty says like this is a choice that you're making like right. like at least lee was like it was like the heat of the moment and he made a decision and right. stuck with it which is something you you would think like ty gives lip service to to respecting that sort of action but like doesn't actually show it in lee's case in lee's case it's just you're putting on against my head and i'm your superior officer and you can't do that Mm -hmm. but now you have ty in in that situation with paladino but there's no like like this was premeditated right Mm -hmm. like and not just premeditated but there were multiple attempts Mm -hmm. you know on ty's life or at least multiple threats against his life and so but now you have ty being like no no we're good and like i don't i don't know like if paladino gets sent to the brig or whatever like but you have like ty basically protecting and defending him Mm -hmm. you know in this instance so the the uh the hypocrisy of it hypocrisy Yeah. yeah. yeah the the yeah it, it just, you know, it was very irritating. I mean, Ty is irritating in general, so, I'm, you know, <laughs> neither here nor there, maybe, but uh, just wanted to sort of point that out, that you, like, this isn't the first time that Ty has a gun pointed to his head, but, you know, he reacts completely differently. And maybe it's, maybe it is that feeling of guilt, kind of like, you know, now he does feel guilty, whereas he didn't feel a lick of guilt about you know, going up against Rosalind. Well, and I think that's, if that's the problem of Ty, I don't know, but that's what the frustrating thing about, not necessarily frustrating in the writing, but like frustrating about the person, Ty. Like, whatever he is, he's like the most convinced. And it's like, if he thinks he's right, he's the most self-righteous, you know, whatever that you can come across and if he thinks he's wrong then he'll almost let himself get killed over Mm -hmm. you know out of how wrong he is and it's like okay certain surely between these two things we have some sort of happy medium you know Um, sure Sure. we all are you know some mix like they say of you know good people making mistakes and doing wrong things sometimes but maybe the right thing most of the time like we all fall somewhere around along a spectrum whereas like with ty it's like he's either a hundred percent right or a hundred percent wrong there's no like anything in between those two um Mm. which makes it like impossible to like argue or have a conversation with him you know (laughs) like he's either gonna like disown you for your betrayal or he'll like lean into the gun and let you like kind of commit suicide by you know 
letting somebody kill him. So, um, yeah, it's those extremes, I think, are like part of the way he thinks, which is tough because there's no like real subtlety there. Um, it's mm. a very, I feel like Ty is a very black or a white viewpoint of the world and his own place in the world, you know? Um, oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's, that's Ty. Um, I don't know, I don't know that there were any, like, real plot characters to talk about besides Cat and Ty. Um, yeah, I think there were the there were plenty of, of other more the kind of talking heads. Um, yeah, I I guess like like D maybe has a little more to say than the other interviewees, but I don't know that she really. I don't know that her story in this rises to the level of plot. Although right. we do get some more interaction, like like she's she leads you know Deanna and team around, you know. Um, showing them around and whatnot and like right when the two cylon raiders appear you know uh deanna sort of goes to d and is asking her questions you mm -hmm. know so there's a little more rapport there and a, like a little more trust maybe between them of you know like d's sort of the liaison maybe or the mm -hmm. the one task to you know provide those sort of answers and stuff but um, well and she gives not only honest answers, but like painfully honest answers, you know, like, sure. like there's no, uh, there's none of that, uh, macho. I mean, obviously D's not a very macho person, but like the, the, the impulse that has Adama and Ty and maybe even like Lee wanting to put on their best face, you know, and not have any criticism, not show any weakness. Let's show how, heroic and perfect we all are d doesn't have that it's like you know she asks does it ever get any easier and she says no it gets harder um mm. like that's like you know more truth than like can you even handle that level of truth like this is the the people that are protecting the fleet and to find out oh this is getting more wearing and more difficult over time you know um not necessarily what you want to hear to be reassured, but maybe it's what you need to hear because it's the truth. Um, you know, like she's not just going to pretend to be perfect. She's going to give an honest answer to your question, which is, sure. I think, what gives her that rapport and that trust with Deanna. That's why Deanna knows she can go to her with those kinds of questions, I think. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I feel like I mean that so maybe D has more sort of plot function and interaction, but um I think I mentioned before we started recording, like this it's not one section, but those episodes throughout of the little talking heads, mostly with like the more minor characters, are kind of my favorite part because you're taking characters who we don't know very well and starting to like deepen and expand them and not giving like full backstories, but kind of hinting at some backstories in ways that are 
you know, at least kind of evocative, I think. Like it kind of gets you wondering about characters that you might not have really thought about before. Hmm. Sure. Sure. And Dee being one of those, we get a lot more mm -hmm. about her sort of backstory of, uh, you know, like with her father not being happy with her decision to go into the military and mm -hmm. um, remembering isn't, isn't D from PyCon? Uh, or, no, no, she's from the same one as Sarek. Um, which one is he from? Hold on. Google. <laughs> oh, I don't remember. Um, one of the really uh one of the really like religiously conservative like fundamentalist ones right sagittarion ah uh, okay um so yeah so anyway like so uh, a given a get, culture you know, of distrust of you know the military and of authority yeah, and yeah, yeah 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 and the government and whatnot right. right so um anyway like you get that that there was that you know tension between her and her father and um you know says that it was it was her father says that the military was a refuge for emotional cripples cripples and patriotic fools um and she says i wanted to believe in something which you know when you say when you say it like that like like if sagittarion is one of the more fundamentalist areas like that's kind of ironic right mm. like that that she didn't apparently believe in in maybe the religious or the mm. you know whatever aspects uh of that colony um were available to her but but saw something more in the military and and government and whatever right. um which which is whatever um right a little but then, rebellious streak in the character in the sense of going you know consciously moving away from her upbringing you know sure. um but then you know apparently has a, a real big fight with her dad says she never wants to see him again and then three weeks later the the cylons attack and right she does never see him again um so yeah so like just that you know uh you know i don't know that we need to like draw any huge insights or whatever but just kind of having that backstory fills in a lot more you know uh makes it interesting when you think about like her relationship with Billy mm -hmm. and that kind of thing as a non-military person, mm -hmm. you know, um, I don't well, know. Well, and Adama too, you know, like that she can maybe like the, so like the scene where she kind of just by speaking truth to power, she got him to change his mind and reunite the fleet, maybe able to, get through to him in a way that she wasn't really able to get through 
and reconcile like with her father so much, you know, like, sure. like it sounds like when they talked, they weren't really hearing each other or coming to an understanding. It was, you know, creating more of a rift between them. Um, yeah. You know, so again, retrospectively, it adds a little bit more depth to some of those earlier scenes, I think. Um, also want to point out uh, that with a lot of these, you know, supporting characters, we get full names for the first time, which we never have before. So, um, you know, D obviously is a nickname because it's Anastasia Duala. So this kind of very regal, lyrical name, and she just goes by D. Um, hmm. Kind of like a very short, sweet, you know, uh nickname given you know her actual full name right right um so yeah so then you get um sort of the other one that that goes along with her and we already talked about them briefly is gata mm -hmm. um who you know there's the whole smoking thing mm -hmm. um but also talks about like he says all he ever wanted was to be an officer on Battlestar, you know, trained my whole life, trained harder than anyone in my unit, basically put my life on hold until I was signed to Galactica. Then the Cylons hit. I realized this is all I know, tech manuals, commands, and tactics. Um, which, didn't, didn't he tell Baltar that he had studied physics at one point too? Like, I don't, I mean, I'm, that doesn't necessarily discount sure. what he's saying here, but. I mean, I think, like, maybe as an undergraduate, like, he hadn't gone for a graduate degree. So he maybe only only somewhat, uh, not, like, extensively, I think, was what yeah. he said. Like, he was he was planning to go back before the Cylons hit. Like, you know, which I think kind of jives with what he says here of, okay, this is all I've done so far in my life. I had these other, I had imagined maybe a future that would go in other directions, but didn't get there. And now... I'm stuck here because the Cylons hit and all of those plans can't really materialize. Um, mm. So if he had wanted to go back and, you know, go back to school, well, that option is sort of off the table really at this point. Um, sure. Sure. And then, you know, he says he's wondering if there's something more and when sort of prompted as to whether that is he mm. you know again he talks he talks about all the sort of the physical things right right uh the the smoking and drinking and getting tattoos don't hurt as much if you drink enough right, right you right. know like that kind of thing like all very tactile things like it's not you know which again right. like maybe that goes with the tech manuals and the physics and the commands and tactics like it's all mm it's all that very tactile stuff and, and isn't, you know, he's not, he's not focused on the feelings or the, you know, right. Whatever else it's, it's, you know, drink ambrosia and smoke when you can. Cause right. Right. You know, and I don't like that makes it sound a little even more hedonistic than I think he is. Like, I think it's right. Like, I, you know, it's not that he's a slave to such things as like, you know, right. tie is maybe like sure. you know, to, to drinking or whatever, but, but just that like, you have to take time out to just sort of enjoy 
the little things that you can when you can. Right. Um, well, so I'm trying to remember my thoughts as you're talking, because I feel like there's two things there that I want to respond. Um, one is I feel like, like, it's funny, you have to clarify that you don't mean hedonistic, because that's one of the funny parts to me is that, like, to call him hedonistic is clearly like, would be a ridiculous thing. Like, this is so unlike every everything we've ever seen from the character. Like, mm -hmm. I, imagining Gaeta as a hedonistic character is sort of ridiculous. And even like, here with the, you know, slightly disheveled, hungover smoker, it's like, it doesn't quite fit right. Like, you know, it's like, pretty much what we've seen of the character is what he describes the, the buttoned up officer that has spent his whole life doing things by the rule book, you know, and sure. has the plan for how life goes and did the plan and kind of forgot to have a life outside of the plan. Um, and now the plan is shot to hell and isn't quite sure what to do. So it's kind of an interesting like contrast, but, um, the other thing I was thinking too is when you said like, uh, you know, she asked what, what have you discovered? And then he talks about all of those physical things. It's like, to me, is like that, is that like a non-answer? Like, you know, he's saying, I wonder if there's something more to life. What have you discovered? Well, he doesn't really answer the question. He talks about the smoking and the drinking and all those kinds of live in the moment pleasures but I don't necessarily get the sense that that's giving him the something more that he's referring to. Well, um, I, so, and, and maybe this is just differences in interpretation, but I, I took that to mean that, that no, there isn't something more that, mm. that that's all there is. And so sure. Make the most of it. Right. And that's why I like these little vignettes is that it suggests that things, but you know, I think it gives you just enough to kind of, Get you to start to wonder about the depths of the characters but like obviously doesn't necessarily give you concrete answers at the at this moment so um yeah i don't know that's not how i had interpreted it but i can't say that it's wrong you know i think i can say you're wrong <laughs> no, <laughs> well I'm you just, can I'm say just, it you can't I, i'm just it. kidding yeah so i mean but that's what's fun is she asks them questions and they give answers and then you get to kind of wonder, all right, what did they mean by that? Um, so, yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. Who's so next? I don't, I don't know. Um, like we already kind of talked about Lee. I don't know that he says anything in his interview that, we haven't already sort of implied like he does he does say like oh you know he does he believes that pilots deserve special consideration but i feel like a lot of that's just sort of like in reaction to the cat situation like before that we sort of talked about right like it's more explanation on not just cat but like cat as sort of the you know representative of all the pilots mm -hmm. of you know, that they're they're being asked to put their lives online every day for a fleet that seems more interested in what they do wrong than what they do right. Um, you know, they're not asking for pity, but they damn well deserve your respect. And yeah. and I mean kind of ironically, we end up giving Kat both, <laughs> right? Like 
yes, respect in the sense that like she is there on the line, but also the pity because like we see what it sort of does to her and and how mm. it affects her. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know. Anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, and and I guess we should mention Baltar. Uh, even though like he ends up not actually giving an interview no um no baltar spends the episode trying to get into an interview and then nobody else really cares um and they end up abandoning him to go film more interesting things like when the the sirens blare and everything um you know and he has this uh, image of himself as this respectable vice president you know and then when he leaves Deanna's what a strange little man you know <laughs> like, right like the, right. he's he's a he is something of a even though they don't know the full extent of how kind of nutty he is uh he is something of a joke among you know the fleet and the crew and everything right and even like as they're prepping for the interview that never happens you know he's talking about like how he discovered these leadership qualities on Cobalt. Right. And Indiana's like, well, I thought several people died. And yeah. it's just like, oh, oh yeah, that was yeah. unfortunate. Like, yes. like the, this is your leadership is getting yeah. people killed. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I mean, maybe a few other notes here and there, but not a ton. Um, any other um, people you want to talk about or I want to or... mention racetrack and Hilo um mostly because I feel like they're I think their interviews are back to back and I feel like they're kind of uh contrasted to each other because racetrack talks about turning off her humanity you know the first thing they tell you is assume that you're already dead dead men don't get scared or freeze up, up under fire um And that enables her to do her job and, you know, talks about filling up hell with all the toasters that she can, you know, that's sort of her perspective on things. And then you cut to Hilo, um, who says, you know, they tell you exactly what Racetrack said, which is to turn off your humanity, but that doesn't work for him. When he's in the field, he can't do that. He has to, you know, um... Which obviously drives with what we've seen of Hilo, you know, um, you know, is, is I, yeah, you know, very human and soft, squishy kind of person, you know, and the person of all of them who is, you know, developing a personal relationship with the enemy, you know, Mm. um, so kind of interesting to hear their like polar opposite sort of, um, perspectives on like what it's like to be a soldier or what you have to do to sort of survive as a soldier emotionally survive i guess sure uh all right all right so we already we did talk a little bit about the final cut um and just sort of the reactions uh adama and roslyn both really like it ty Thinks it's a hatchet job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, did you have any other thoughts to say there? I mean, I don't know if you wanted to go through Deanna's sort of summation at all, but I mean, I, mean I think we kind of talked around it a lot. 
Um, yeah. I mean, she, like, like they said, she did exactly what they asked her and talked about their acknowledged their weaknesses and their flaws while also celebrating not just their strengths and not just the fact that, oh, most of the time they don't make mistakes, but I think the real, the real kind of hard hitting point of that, of maybe the episode or like her sort of monologue at the end is this idea of there are, there, there not being any like replacements, like, you know, kind of this notion of even the fact that they do it at all is like kind of a miracle, you know, that they even get up in the morning and do jobs that have no pay, no relief, no reward, no thank you. They just sort of, you know, whether it's, you know, whichever of their methods kind of works the best, they all kind of find ways to sort of keep going. So I feel like that's the kind of the big takeaway from it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So then uh, the camera pulls back to reveal yeah. a different audience who's watching it right. in a movie theater. Um, you know, right. and they don't have uh, popcorn though. Yeah, it's like the the Cylon little Cineplex. Um, <laughs> the the Cylonplex. Cylons. Yeah. Cy Siloplex, yeah. anyway, something like Silence, that. Yeah. Um, um, right. So, uh, right. So we get six: Sharon, Doral, <gasps> and Yana. What? Dun dun dun. Exactly. Um. Yeah. So, uh, which of course, like, totally recontextualizes everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and we didn't even mention the the little bit where. Deanna stumbles uh, into the sick bay mm. follow, while following Kat and sees Sharon, pregnant Sharon, mm -hmm. in, you know, in the uh, bed there trying to be helped by Doc Cottle. Mm -hmm. um, presumably the tape of that, you know, she hands over to Adama, but apparently can make like a copy or something in the meantime like like she's able to right she like quickly made like a duplicate or something because i would assume that she didn't just hand over a different tape because like adama would see that that's not the right tape right like right right the assumption being that she has something on it that right, would right. be incriminating so if there isn't something incriminating on it then it's like hey where's the real tape right um Anyway, so, yeah. Uh, and makes me wonder, so given that whole speech, mm. uh, like, is this, you, the whole, not speech, but, like, her monologue sort of at the end of the thing, like, is this just, like, clever Cylon covering up, you know, what she's really doing? Mm -hmm. Or is this a legitimate, like, Cylon take Right. On um, humanity. On humanity, and right. These people aren't Cylons. Well, you're right, they're not. But yeah. then she also says they're not robots blindly following orders and polishing their boots. That's like a separate statement. And yes, it's sort of like the way it's composed, like makes you think that she's talking about Cylon. Mm -hmm. But she's she's 
kind of saying like those are two separate statements they're not right you're not necessarily saying that cylons are robots blindly following orders it's right. just that sort of by juxtaposing the two that's the implication you could have and right. and so so like when you look at it a little closer you sort of see these little yeah you know little little things in there like like almost like Because one of the things that I think that we've seen so far with the Cylons is their sort of fascination of human psychology. Like, mm -hmm. why do hum why do humans do the things they do? Um, and so it becomes like, uh, you know, why why do these weirdos on the Galactica do what they do? You know, why are they the thin blue line, so to speak? Right. Um, right. You know. Uh, and I think just reading that through the thrust of it with like the knowledge that she's a Cylon, like does kind of make you have a little bit different take of, or at least it has to ask, you have to ask that question, you know, again, of is this genuine? Is it not genuine? If it is genuine, what does that mean about Cylons? Mm -hmm. or, or what does it mean about Deanna specifically, knowing that the Cylons do have sort of, different personalities anyway and, mm -hmm. and disagreements of their own to begin with um and yeah yeah right. i don't know i mean i i don't know that i have any great you know uh conclusions to sort of provide in light of any of that it's just right you know what it is well and is it i forget which of the other silence says when it's over like oh their resilience is remarkable like um there is that sense of Oh, they just sat back and enjoyed a very interesting and inspiring view of human life. You know, like they're not necessarily like twisting their mustaches about the whole thing. It's like they seem genuinely like I, the suggestion is that potentially this is genuine, like the sentiment mm. behind it. You know, it's not merely a Cylon telling people what they want to hear, but might actually contain her actual opinion as right. well. Um, and so, so even when Deanna says, you know, I came to Galactica to tell a story and in all honesty, I thought I knew what the story was like, right. That's could Maybe actually that's be her yeah. actual Cylon yeah. opinion. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, right. So in, and in that sense, then like, thinking back even further to Adama and Rosalind and sort of their initial plan was, was to bring the fleet together. But like, like now is this having like an even, is this like art living beyond itself, right? Sure. Like, right. You know, beyond, beyond the intentions of the artist or right. the, you know, the people who commission the art, like, you know, this is, and like I say that sort of jokingly, but there is a sense in which, art in itself is is sort of a a lesson in compassion and mm. or or exercise anyway in compassion and mm -hmm. and whatever whether you're creating the art or experiencing or viewing or you know right otherwise consuming the art like right I, I don't know if that's the right word but you know what i mean like that there's this sense of you know it can certainly live beyond you know I mean, I, I think you and I believe this sort of implicitly, but like, you know, certainly it lives beyond the artist mm -hmm. uh, and certainly can live beyond the intent of the artist, but can also sort of live beyond 
and and sort of be re contextualized reinterpreted based on the audience and you know the different uh you know people who encounter it whether human or cylon right um, so you're kind of you know i i've never thought of it in those terms but i like that a lot and i feel like we should keep it in mind going forward um because i don't think they ever reference the this documentary again but i feel like that could be really interesting to look for like the kind of suggestion being all right this documentary was created for the purpose of reconciliation between this kind of civilian and military halves of the fleet but potentially could this have something to do with reconciliation between humans and silence you know um a, a an opening up of you know a channel towards compassion or empathy um mm. which is kind of interesting i mean often you hear that like documentarians talk about their they may have had a subject in mind that was interesting to them that maybe they uh were you know might have been interested to study and might have been fascinated by but not someone they necessarily agreed or approved of or mm. anything and then you find oh after we spent a year or whatever um suddenly they have this whole other perspective and appreciation for you know whatever the subject was than they had when they started like so yeah i think it definitely kind of hints at those ideas um yeah yeah I like it. Um, and then they also, of course, play the, the cut footage as well. So they have the, the, the director's cut as well as the final producer's cut. Sure. Um, you know, which includes the, the miracle baby um, who Deanna confirms survived whatever the problem was. So, mm. you know, their, their, their child, um, you know, is out there and you know as deanna says it's a miracle from god so they'll sort of have to look towards protecting that in the future yeah indeed all right well uh i think that's it any final thoughts on bsg uh no i think that kind of covered it um, I guess the only other thing I would say is, of course, like, clearly this is a different format than, like, other episodes, sure. right? So, right, so, right, like, the kind of found footage documentary thing, yeah. And, I mean, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on that kind of thing, but just that, that idea of, like, sometimes you know, some of the, the best episodes are those ones that sort of take you out of, you know, like we've talked right. with Buffy and, and Angel before, um, the ones that sort of take you out of the normal week-to-week -week, mm -hmm. uh, thing. And, you know, I don't know that, like, I don't this I don't think this is maybe on par with, you know, once more with feeling or anything, but, like, sure. it, you know, I, I do think there are some really good moments in this that just because of the format and the way that it's given yeah um you can have and and you know there isn't 
there isn't really a plot to it. I mean, we, you know, the whole, I guess sort of the plot of it is Deanna trying to find her story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like if you want to talk about sort of the meta plot of mm-hmm. the episode, that would be it. But like, you know, you have this, we call, I mean, we call them sort of plot characters because stuff happens, but like, yeah, you know, Ty and the death threat and Kat and her stems, like, like they're not, it's, they're not really strong plot elements, right? right? Like, the the story isn't about those things. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of any any plot of, you know, Deanna trying to find her story is pretty loose. Like, mm-hmm. so it, it is just really sort of a lot of vignettes and, you know, pieces sort of fitting together, which yeah, you know, I, get, I guess you can make the argument is kind of like life in general anyway. <laughs> like... Well, and I think that's why those come across so strongly for me is that, like, I like that, all right, we're going to do an episode that is documentary footage and interviews and talking heads and all that thing. And they don't, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like the obvious route would be to, um, you know, I like, let me put it this way. I like that they resisted the impulse to spend all that time on, like, the big main characters, you know, like, mm. like you could kind of have this, this episode where it's, it's Rosalind and Adama and even more like Lee and Starbuck and all that. But like, I like that kind of like what they tell Deanna to do is like, go put a human face on the fleet. That's kind of like what the episode does is it says like, no, we're going to dig a little deeper or at least hint at greater depths to, you know, to D and to Gata and to Racetrack and to Hilo and, you know, some of the people that we haven't gotten to know quite the same way. Um, And those are characters that are often plot functional, you know, Mm. and they just get to be characters here. Like their point isn't to read Technobabble. It's to tell you about their history or how they're feeling or how tiring this job is. Like, it's like, oh, thank you for asking. You know, <laughs> nobody ever asks the grunts, you know, how they're doing and everything. Um, so I think that's the fact that they just kind of say, screw plot. We're just going to spend it on character um, is sort of what I like about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, we'll be back with some more. ESG next week and some uh, Buffy. Sounds good. See you then.